We're going to be in the book of John this morning, John chapter 12. Initially, when I had put together my preaching schedule for this fall, I planned to preach this passage, and then the more I studied it, the more I thought it needed to be combined with the rest of the chapter. So I, uh, I, I switched some things around so that I preached through this, this uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 12, all the way down through the rest of the chapter. And then um, this week I was starting to study it, and I put together the order of service. And um, Isaiah 6 is referenced in, in, in the next part of the chapter, and so um, at the end of the chapter. And so that was supposed to be our scripture reading, but then I, um, I just changed my mind again, so I changed it to it and back. So we're going to do 12, 12 down through um, verse, uh, we'll go down through verse 36 today. Church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and a couple weeks ago, we, we reached a watershed moment in the Gospel. Up until that point, um, the, the Gospel had been what we called the Book of Signs, and that was kind of a description of the earthly ministry of Jesus, how um, he went and we, we saw how he turned water into wine and uh, conversed with Nicodemus and met the woman at the well and, and walked on water and fed 10,000 people and um, healed a man who was born lame and healed a centurion's son and then healed a man born blind and raised Lazarus from the dead. And all these things were written, uh, the book of John tells us, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God and that by believing we would have life in his name. And that's uh, what, why the whole book was written. And we saw in that book of signs, we really saw that emphasized. And then um, last week, we, we saw a, a turn where it goes from the first half of the book to the second half. And we enter into the, the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of Jesus' life is described in the second half of the Gospel of John. And we saw in that passage, starting in John 12, 1 last week, how um, Jesus is anointed. And we, we saw last week how he's anointed to be the Passover lamb. He's anointed to be the sacrifice who takes on the sin of the people. But he's also anointed to become the king. And we saw that uh, John is trying to communicate to us that the king reigns from the cross. And now we enter into what is often called the triumphal entry. And John's description of the triumphal entry starting in John 12, verse 12. And um, we'll see that the king enters into the city. So look with me in John 12, verse 12. I'll read this and then we'll talk about it. Says this, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Some among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and there 
where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it that heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Father in heaven, we ask one more time that you would make your word clear to us. Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that you would remove the distractions. That you would burn them away like the morning fog. That we would see your son and his glory and his name and that you would glorify yourself in this place today pray for these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, some people celebrate Christmas in July, and uh, today we're celebrating the triumphal entry in October. And uh, I thought about seeing if we could get some palm tree branches so you guys could all wave them. Uh, for those of you who grew up in a church that did that, and I, I decided that I'd, I was not going to do that. So, uh, but this is the triumphal entry, and, and I, the triumphal entry has always struck me as a little bit of a, a strange passage, uh, this idea that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. After all, um, here are these crowds that are excited, and they're, 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 they're lauding him, and they're praising him, and, and just in a few short days, Jesus is going to die at the hands of some of them. It's always struck me that all four of the Gospels have such an exultant tone with Jesus entering into the Passion Week um, for this. And and yet, Jesus himself knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that he is going to his death. He knows that this is his funeral celebration. He knows that before the week is out, he will be laid into the ground. And the question is, why would he go then? What's Jesus' purpose for going up to Jerusalem. I'm, what, what is, why would Jesus go knowing that they're going to put him to death? Why would Jesus go? What purpose could he have? What mission could he have to enter into Jerusalem to go to his death? It, in the words of the great philosopher Kevin Malone from The Office, it seems stupid. We're, we're going to see this morning that there are 10 reasons, at least 10 reasons in this passage, why Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. There are at least 10 reasons in this passage why Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. But I'm just going to give you a a cheat, a hint now. Number five is the most important, okay? So 10 reasons, number five is the most important, but 10 reasons why Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. The first one is this. Jesus goes up to fulfill Scripture. He goes up to fulfill Scripture. We see here two uh, two verses from the Old Testament are referenced um, in reference to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26, 
and Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. And Psalm 118 is, uh, is a hymn in the Old Testament book of Psalms where the people of God are pleading for the king to enter into the, and to bring salvation. And it's, there's this promise in there that Yahweh, the Lord, is going to work salvation through his king and through his messenger. And so this song, is the, the crowds are singing it as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, is to celebrate the fact that they believe Jesus is bringing salvation through his king. And what Jesus does in verse 14 by finding a young donkey and sitting on it confirms that. It confirms it because Jesus himself is doing that just as it is written. And then John cites Zechariah 9 here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's Jesus' way of saying, that's me. That I'm the king. I'm coming to my kingdom. I'm coming into my city. I'm coming to reign and to rule. I'm coming to establish the kingdom of God. I love this passage from Zechariah. Um, Particularly, I love Zechariah 9. We read it just a minute ago. Uh, verse 13, and uh, it's so meaningful. It says, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim as its, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And in the New Testament, when authors cite one verse, oftentimes they have the whole context of that verse in mind. And so when John cites Zechariah 9, he has at least 9 through 13 in view. Uh, it's kind of in reference. And, and the reason this is interesting is, um, in the time of the Old Testament, the best infantry soldiers, the best foot soldiers in the world came from Greece. And they were hired as mercenaries all over the Mediterranean, all over the known world. Um, some of you have seen the movie or, or read the book or heard the story about 300, right? The, the Spartan warriors who stood up the, the Persian army of as many as a million men. Um, That's because across the ancient Mediterranean, it was universally recognized that the Greeks were at that time the, the uh, the, the most fearsome foot soldiers, the most fearsome warriors, so much so that um, even, even the kings of Persia who were the sworn enemies of Greece would, they would hire Greek mercenaries to come and fight for them and to come and serve them. And and so when, when Zechariah says the king is going to defeat Greece, He's making a statement about the power of uh, about the power of the Messiah. He's making a statement about the importance of of the King who's who's coming and who's he's going to he's going to come and to rule and to reign and establish the kingdom of God that goes throughout all times and all nations. That He will defeat the strongest enemy to save His people. So the first reason that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem is to fulfill Scripture. The second reason that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem is to confound the wise, to confound the wise. His disciples did not understand these things at first, we're told, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The thing about this Zechariah passage is that um, a donkey is not what you would ride into war. Um, if you are wanting to go to war, might I recommend anything else? A camel, an elephant, a horse on foot, not a donkey. Those are not war animals. And so the fact that the prophecy is citing that, that the king is going to come on a donkey, a beast of burden, a humble animal, an ugly animal, it is saying that the king is going to accomplish this great work, this great strength through weakness. He's going to win this great victory through defeat. 
See, the, the crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness about him. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees, who are the, the wisest people of the, war, of, of the day, the people who knew Scripture so well, the people who should have picked up on this said, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That the, the Pharisees are trying to, they, they can't understand why the king would do this, why Jesus would do this. They don't, they don't understand how the Old and the New Testament fit together as one story. They're not, they're not paying attention to the, the deeper rhythms, the deeper meaning of what is happening, the events that are unfolding before their eyes. And that is on purpose. Because when Jesus comes to conquer, he does so in a way that confounds the wisdom of this world. The book of 1 Corinthians says it this way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The, the way the king establishes his throne, the way the king establishes his kingdom, the way the king works victory confounds the wise. And so if I might apply this to us quickly here, this ought to encourage us to be humble. The humble king ought to have a humble people. You and I ought to have the mentality of Mary who comes and gives all that she has to serve the one who saved her and her brother. You and I ought to have the mentality of John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. Christians, if our, if our king has come in such a humble way to confound the wisdom of the wise, then you and I ought also to be hum, a humble people. We ought not to be marked by, by boastfulness. We ought not to be marked by ego. We ought not to be marked by pride, but rather by humility rather by trusting that the Lord works in mysterious ways and accomplishes his victory through defeat and brings about life through death. Now, Jesus goes to confound the wise. Number three, Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the risk of stating the obvious to die. Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the risk of stating the obvious to die. It says in verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And the reason they come to Philip, because Bethsaida is a, is a Hellenistic town. And so the Greeks come to Philip because he talks like them. Even though he's of Jewish descent, he, he has the name Philip. Philip is a Greek name, and he's from a Greek-speaking town. It's kind of a suburb of Capernaum. It's, it's one of the cities in, in Galilee that is dominated by Greek culture. And so they come to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, who's from this culture in Galilee, and they ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Philip and Andrew are kind of inseparable. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Now listen to that statement. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man, for that figure from Daniel 7 who sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, to be glorified. What hour is he talking about? Well, if you've been with us or if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you know that this idea of the hour that is coming uh, runs through the whole Gospel of John like a railroad. We see this so in John 2, 4, Jesus said to her, that's, the, that's to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus says in John 4, 21, to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And he says again in verse 23, But the hour is coming. And he says in 5.25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And in 5.28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In John 7.30, we're told they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in John 8.20, it said, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John has been telling us up to this moment, the hour is coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's almost here, it's almost there. And then he says here, my hour has come. It was hour for what? What is the hour that he's coming for? Well, he tells us in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is the hour that Jesus is coming for? The hour is for him to die like a seed in the ground that will burst forth and bring forth fruit. Christians, you and I must always keep this reality of the cross in front of us. We must never make the mistake of relegating the cross to the beginning of the Christian life. We must never make the error of putting the cross at the beginning of Christianity and then everything else follows from it. The cross is the Christian life. That's the purpose that Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. He came to die on the cross. We, we do not have a, a, a spirituality. We do not have a religion. We do not have a, a belief system which is absent the cross. It's not a tertiary issue. It's not a minor issue. It's not a secondary issue. The issue of the cross is what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. That's why Jesus came to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus came is to die. And you and I must put that as the forefront of any effort to get to God. When you and I think of Christ, it must be in relationship to the cross, either as the Jesus who is headed towards the cross or as the Jesus who was risen again after he died on the cross. Christ crucified is the center of what you and I believe and you and I, the center of what you and I understand God to be and Christ to be, that we must never lose sight of the cross. And here's one way, one way in which the cross matters for the Christian life. And it's our, our fourth reason that Jesus came. It's to set an example for his followers. Jesus came to set an example for his followers. It says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, I'm coming up here to die. 
And therefore, those who, who are my followers must also die. He says, if you love your life in this world, if you love it so much that you're willing to sacrifice everything else just for the sake of your own gain, for the sake of your own, for the sake of your own fame, for the sake of your own pleasure, then you will lose everything. But the one who hates his life in this world, the one who gives up everything, the one who, like Paul, is willing to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or who says in Philippians, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That person, that person will keep his life for eternity. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Hey, Christians, you and I, if we are to be his followers, we must die if we are to live. And I would question, if your faith doesn't cost you anything, if your faith doesn't lead to some kind of sacrifice, if your faith doesn't lead to you dying to yourself, if your faith doesn't look any, if your life doesn't look any different because of the presence of faith versus not, I would question whether or not you truly have faith. Because Jesus says, the, the one who is my servant, the one who loves his life, the, the one who is my follower, the one who seeks me, the one who loves me, the one who believes in me, will lose his life just as I have done. And that's a stark, hard message to hear. Because there is so much loss in the Christian life. There's often loss of friendship. There's a sacrifice of time and resources and energy Yet there is so much gain on the other side. There's so much gain. To have everything and not have Jesus is really to have nothing, but to have Jesus and nothing is to have everything. There's so much gain to be had in being willing to follow our Savior and to lose it all but to gain Him. Number five, the, the reason that Jesus came to Jerusalem, perhaps the, the, I think the most important reason, the, the reason that pervades this whole chapter, the, the reason that, that is, uh, underwrites all these other reasons, and, and the reason for which all these other reasons exist, is to bring glory to God. It's to bring glory to God. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. This is the same word that sometimes is used to describe troubled waters. It said, My soul is choppy and my heart is in a storm and the waves are going up and I feel so much sorrow and turmoil and chaos and nervousness and anxiety here. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's what most of us would pray for. I don't want to be troubled anymore. Jesus says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to fulfill scripture. He came to, to die on the cross for our sins. He, he came to confound the wisdom of the wise. He came to set an example for his followers. We'll see in a minute. He came to cast out Satan. He came to judge the world. He, he came to make sons of darkness into sons of light. He came to draw all people to himself. But ultimately, he came to bring glory to the Father's name. He came to bring glory to the Father. He, claimed to be, he came to be a vessel by which God glorified himself. It says in verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven. 
I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father says, I, I am going to use this hour, this moment, this troubled soul to glorify my name. Christian, the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was to glorify the name of the Father, to bring glory to God. And that ought to be our ultimate purpose too. That ought to be our ultimate purpose. Whether we live or die, whether we eat or drink, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we ought to do all for the glory of the Father. We ought to do all so that we bring fame to His name. We ought to conduct our lives and, and our relationships with our children and our parents and our spouses and our workplaces so that people would look at it and they would glorify our Father in heaven. Christians, we, we ought not think that we are above the very purpose for which Jesus came to Jerusalem to die. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, I know it's not technically in there, but when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, that means we're telling Jesus, and we're telling the Father, make my life a lamp for your glory. Christians, we ought to do that. And we ought also to notice that the way that God is pleased to bring about his glory, the way that God is pleased to draw attention to himself, the way that God is pleased to lift his name up is in the death of his son. It's not in the glitz and the glamour. It's not in things that are compelling. It's not in things that look, uh, that look shiny to the world. It's under dark storm clouds and an earth that is shaking and rusty nails, and splintered wood. And the tortured scream, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's where God brings glory to himself. That's where God glorifies his name in the salvation of sinners through the death of his son. Christians, you and I are not above the same purpose in our lives, but rather in times of plenty and in times of want, in times of abundance and in times of sacrifice, in times of joy and in times of sorrow, we too ought to seek to do all for the glory of the Father. Number six, Jesus came to make the voice of the Father heard. Jesus came to make the voice of the Father heard. I love the crowd's response. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Another said, an angel has spoken to him. Today we maybe would say there's a drone overhead. And Jesus' response, and you, you sense the annoyance here, and it's very understandable. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. I already know the Father's plan. I already know what the Father's doing. I already know what the Father's up to. This came for you, not for me. We've seen throughout the Gospel of John that this is Jesus. He's trying to make the voice of the Father heard. See, for example, in John 5, 37 through 38, it said, And the Father who sent me has, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
Jesus comes that the Father would bear witness about him, that his voice we could hear in the Son. He came that you and I might hear the very voice of God. And so listen to him today. Don't pretend it's somebody else speaking. Don't pretend there's something else going on, but listen to the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son. Listen to what he has to say. Listen to how he's testifying to his Son's glory. Listen to him. Listen to who he is. Do not harden your heart as at Meribah in the wilderness. Do not harden your heart to the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son. Number seven. Jesus came for the judgment of this world. Jesus came for the judgment of this world. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Jesus came to usher the judgment of this world, and that includes all of us. We'd love to say, oh yeah, that world over there gets judged. But that, this includes us. Jesus came to judge the world. Uh, this is, I love what the scholar D.A. Carson has to say about this. He says, this has a negative aspect because on the cross, Jesus reveals just how bad our sins actually are. There, there's nobody who can put their faith in Jesus and have any claim to say, I'm a good person. There's nobody who believes in Jesus Christ who has a claim to to some kind of self-righteousness and some kind of reputation and, and some kind of impressiveness. There is nobody who looks good at the foot of the cross. There's no none of us whose shame is not brought out into the open and none of us whose pain is not revealed and none of us whose sin is not condemned. And yet there's a positive aspect too. Because the judgment of the sins of this world were judged in Christ. And even though my sin and my shame and my regret and my pain are brought out into the open, they are taken care of. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. It is well. It is well with my soul. The cross has this paradoxical relief that comes because on the one hand it reveals that we are worse than we could possibly imagine we we were saying this in our men's study this past week that cheer up you're worse than you think you are the gospel the, the cross of christ reveals that your sins are worse than you could possibly imagine that the worst thing you've ever thought about yourself is actually kind of putting frosting on it And yet the cross of Christ also tells us, in the words of Tim Keller, that the love of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God are greater than we ever dared to imagine. In the judgment of this world, our sins are judged and they are nailed to the cross. And they are put to death. And our penalties are removed from us. Christians, the, the judgment of this world is, has a negative aspect. It also has a positive aspect. And so if I could just say this, let us embrace confession. Let us embrace confession. I said that just a moment ago that hopefully one of the most encouraging, uplifting parts of the sermon is the prayer of confession for you. 
Because in that prayer of confession, our sins are brought forward. At least mine are. And God judges them and he puts them on Christ and they're taken away. They're taken off into the wilderness. That They're put to the bottom of the sea and they're, they're removed from us as far as the east is from the west. The scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians in the cross, our, our sins are judged and removed and condemned and taken away from us. And so we need not be afraid to bring them out into the open. It's actually by bringing them out into the open that we sense that sense of relief and the love of God for us. It's actually by confessing them that we find forgiveness. We need not run from our sins anymore. Jesus came to judge the sins of this world. Jesus also came, number eight, that the ruler of this world would be cast out that the ruler of this world would be cast out. And universally that's agreed as far as I can see. Uh, that's referring to Satan. That the cross of Christ breaks the power of Satan and casts him out from the world. Uh, in the words of Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame in him by triumphing over them in him. I'm persuaded that this is the same thing that is referred to in Revelation 20 when it describes the dragon, that ancient serpent, being bound and thrown into a pit for a thousand years. I'm convinced that this is the same event. Not all are, but, but that makes the best sense of what Scripture has to say. But at the cross of Christ, the ruler of this world is cast out. That he's, His power is removed. He's dethroned. He's defanged. He's neutered. But doesn't 1 Peter 5.8 say, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. But Satan's power in this age is deception and lies and accusation. He has no authority over this world. He has no power over this world that those who are in Christ can resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brothers throughout the world. Satan is defeated with the cross of Christ. That he's been tossed into the wilderness, no more to terrorize the people of God. And so if I could apply this, and I, I do believe that the, the twin dangers that we, we make as Christians are sometimes we, we pretend that Satan doesn't exist, and sometimes we pretend that Satan is like some kind of dual, just has as much power as God, and it's an endless cycle of good versus evil. But that is not the case. Satan does exist. Satan does go about prowling, seeking for people to devour. But Satan has been thrown off of his throne. And Satan does not reign in this world anymore, and his powers have been broken, and he has been cast out and disarmed. So Christians resist him. Resist his accusations. Resist his deception. Resist his lies. Do not listen to him. He exists to accuse you and I. But Jesus says to us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Who will condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, who was risen again. Christians, if you are in Christ, Satan's accusations ought to have no power over you. 
So resist him and stand firm in your faith. Number nine, Jesus died, Jesus came to Jerusalem in order that he might draw all people to himself. So it says in verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So in the death of Christ, he's lifted up. That's in reference to the cross. Verse 33 is very clear about this. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's going to be lifted up from the earth. And in that being lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. Uh, we, we should acknowledge that this teaches a, 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 an understanding of the cross, which we would say is an effectual atonement, that the cross of Christ actually does something. It does not merely open the door for a possibility to happen. When Christ died, he, drew, he draws all people to himself. His grace is irresistible. His atonement has purchased the faith of his people. Christ's death is effectual, and he draws all people to himself. This is what is interesting, because I told you back at the beginning of the sermon, like three hours ago, that Zechariah, I love this, Zechariah 9.13 refers to the Greeks being conquered. But did you notice in verse 20 what happened? The Greeks come up to meet Jesus. They want to see Jesus. How, how can... How, how can the king conquer the Greeks who come to be his subjects? The king conquers them through converting them. It's very clear that in the Gospel of John that the hour comes when the nations come near to the king. Jesus died in order to draw all people to himself. The king is on a mission to save his people. The king is on a mission that he would go and bring back all his people from the ends of the earth. He already told us this in John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The king in his death draws all people to himself. He draws all of his people, all of his sheep who are lost, who are scattered to the four corners of the, of the winds. On the de- in the death of Christ, God goes out and seeks and saves the lost. He leaves the 99 to find the one. The death of Christ is the king on his mission to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, to fulfill the promise made to Isaiah, to fulfill the promise made to Zechariah, that he conquers through converting even the Greeks. And so Christians, let us join him on his mission. Let us go with him into the four corners of the wind. Let us go with him to shake the gates of hell. Let us go with him that we would bring back all those sheep who are scattered into the fold. Let's join Jesus on his mission. Do you understand? The death of Christ actually gives power to your evangelism. Because the death of Christ is what draws all people to himself. Jesus is going to save his people, which means that if you and I stumble over our words and we kind of forget, oh, I forgot to mention the resurrection, and, and, and we kind of forget to explain all things, it, does, it means that, doesn't mean that God is going to fail. The cross of Christ does not fail to draw all people to himself. Rather, in the cross, God effectually draws all of his people, which means when you and I can go out and share the gospel, we can trust that God will not allow any of his sheep to perish because he does not lose those sheep who the Father has given to him. 
There is no other firm foundation for evangelism. That's why we exist here. We have to believe that the reason that God has all of us here in Bangor, Maine area is because there are still sheep out there who need to be rescued. There are still broken families and broken marriages and people in the dark who need the gospel of Christ. And God has put you in your neighborhoods and in your communities, in your cities, in your school districts, in your soccer leagues, in your baseball leagues, which run 12 months of the year in Maine, so that you can join Jesus on his mission to draw all people to himself. Christians, let us join him as he goes to draw his people and let us experience the power of the cross and giving sight to the blind and putting hearts and corpses and raising the dead to life. Finally, number 10, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to make sons of darkness into sons of light. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to make sons of darkness into sons of light. We see the crowd answers him. And I think in verse 34, the crowd's response is actually very reasonable. I don't know if you saw that. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. In other words, the Son of Man is in Daniel 7, and it does say this. They're not making this up. Will reign, will reign forever. He's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can he die on the cross? And who's the Son of Man? Those are good questions. Very good questions. And Jesus does not have time to answer them. He responds to their reasonable questions with a plea. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. No longer walk in the darkness. No longer be muddled in your own sin. No longer be held down by, by the sin of this world and the darkness of this world. No longer stumble where you're walking. But while you have the light, look at it. Believe in it. Trust in it. You may become sons of light. Jesus knows that his days are short. And he says, listen, there's a, <laughs> there is an answer to your questions. But before I can give you that answer, you need to believe in the light. Notice the urgency with Jesus, which Jesus is speaking with which here. Notice how Jesus, he could have explained this. In fact, there are things that in this, throughout the Gospel of John that he's kind of already explained it, but he cuts to the chase. He says, I do not have a lot of time with you. The day is short. The light is only among you for a little while longer. So while the light is here, walk in the light. Believe in the light that you could become a son of light. And maybe you're here today. And you've heard us describe this strange way that the king wins his victory. And the strange purpose of Christ on the cross. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe this is your first Sunday in a long time. 
and you're thinking, I want to be a son of the light. I want to join his kingdom. If he'll take the disciples, why wouldn't he take me? Of course he would receive you. The light is in front of you today. It is not a mistake. Hear the urgency of this. You and I are not promised tomorrow. We're not promised five minutes from now. In just a minute, some of you are going to take your lives in your hand and go across the street to the parking lot. You are not promised the rest of the day. And the light is here right now, right in front of you. Do not wait for tomorrow to walk in the light. Do not put it off. Don't procrastinate. Maybe you're here and you have questions, good questions, real questions, legitimate questions, and I promise you there are answers for them. But hear the plea of Jesus in this passage. While you have the light in front of you, believe in the light and take comfort in this, that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. And you could make that rejoicing in heaven happen today by believing in the light. Father in heaven, we thank you that your son is indeed on a mission to seek and save his people, to draw people from the four winds to himself, Father, we have to believe that includes people who are here in this area. We have to believe that there are still sheep who need to be brought into the flock here. We pray that you would empower us to go out into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our communities, and to share the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us to embrace the cost of discipleship to embrace the loss, to not run from it. But Father, would you give us the light that comes with that cost? Would you help us to see the gain that comes at the other side? Father, we pray, maybe if we're here today and so much of today went over our head, and all the singing and all the songs and all the talk about death, it went over our head, but we know this one thing, that we today want to become sons of light. Would you help us not to procrastinate? Would you help us not to put it off? But would you help us to step into the light and to receive his forgiveness? Father, we all pray this morning that you would do all of this for the sake of your own name that you would exalt and glorify your name in the midst of this, that you would magnify your fame in us today, that you would today, through us, through all the things that are going on here, that today you would work in your mighty way to exalt the fame in the name of your Son. It's in that name that we pray. Amen.